You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you guys. What an exciting time as we're beginning the process of hiring a next generation's pastor. We'll surely be in prayer for the team, for the committee that is going to be searching for someone. I'm so glad that you are here this morning. Um, I hope this past week that you received a Valentine's card or two. You know, they've got Valentine's cards for everybody these days. Um, I don't know if you've heard about the Calvinists, the Valentine card for Calvinists. Your name must be Grace because I find you irresistible. That's right across the aisle from the Arminian uh, Valentine's Day card. It says, I want you to be my Valentine, but it's your choice after all. (laughs) Maybe my favorite Valentine cards are the Puritan Valentine cards. Uh, You almost make my heart dance, and dancing is forbidden. (laughs) Maybe my favorite is, happy Valentine's Day. Let us never speak of this again. Uh, This morning is the fifth Sunday in a row that we have talked about spiritual gifts from 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Uh, The text has moved from talking about many of the spiritual gifts to love and the importance of love in using our gifts. And then also it's narrowed down to a teaching about the gifts of tongues and prophecy. After today's message... Let us never speak of this again, okay? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, I've learned a lot about these chapters. I feel much more settled in my understanding of uh, the spiritual gifts and what is being taught here. And I feel more equipped to discuss the topic with others. I surely hope that you feel the same. We'll begin our time this morning reading a text, which is 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 40. So it's a long text Now, if if you're here for the first time, let me say this is part five of a mini-series from the book of 1 Corinthians. So the the other sermons are on the website. You can get the manuscripts or the the audio with that. But if you want to do more study on this. But if you've never been in, if you've never really encountered this text or thought much about it, Probably most of you just kind of move on through. That's what I've done for the most part through the years. Um, There are going to be some things that sound a little bit strange or even alarming to you. But be patient as we come back through and work through the text. The meaning will begin to unfold, I think. And especially as it brings the, the discussion of these three chapters together. And toward the end, I'm going to make a few comments about... What we hope will be the beginning of a revival that's happening at Asbury, Kentucky. It's spilled over to a few other places. Um, such moments have happened in isolation in our, our land in the last 50 years. The last great revival in, in America was the Jesus movement. I got saved during the Jesus movement. As a result of all of that stuff going on, the Holy Spirit used it to bring me to Christ. And we've had little pockets here and there. But it's been a long time, and frankly, I've not been too optimistic about revival in the land, but I feel hopeful about what's going on at Asbury. We'll talk about that 
towards the end. Wouldn't it be interesting if TikTok were used for good in this movement? Now, this is not a point where teenagers are encouraged to elbow your parents and say, see, I told you I should be on TikTok. That's not the point here, okay? Um, but something going on, and we'll talk a little bit at, towards the end. And I think an appropriate day, talking about the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit and how the, the Lord works in our lives and in church. So 1 Corinthians 14, beginning with verse 20, we're going to read uh, all the verses to the end of the chapter, verses 20 through 40. If you would, please stand for the reading of Scripture. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Remember, he's in the middle of an argument here. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only one or two, or excuse me, two or three at the most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in church. Let's move on as quickly as we can from this. <clears throat> as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. I think you're going to feel a lot better about this text when we finish with the sermon uh, than you do now. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. This is the word of God for the people of God. 
Amen. Thank you and be seated. Well, this morning we're going to resume Paul's teaching about tongues and prophecy right in the middle of the argument. 1 Corinthians 14, 20, it's halfway through the chapter. So he follows up the argument of the first half by admonishing the Corinthians not to be childish in their approach to spiritual gifts. If you want to be like a child, Paul said, be like a child concerning evil. Don't be overly aware of the evil that is going on in the world. Now that would be a difficult thing to do in Corinth. Because Corinth was a wicked city. It's a difficult thing to do in our day as well, wouldn't you say? I mean, it's in your face all the time. The wickedness of the world. And Paul says, be innocent with that. Don't be so sophisticated with evil. But when it comes to church, don't act like children. Be loving and considerate of others. That's the focus of Paul's call for maturity. In verse 21, he's already alluding to an Old Testament passage, Isaiah 28, 11. Although Paul doesn't quote exactly from the Hebrew or the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, most of the New Testament descriptions of Old Testament verses come from the Septuagint reading, the Greek version. That's why it'll be a little bit different. You'll say, wait a minute. It says this, but the New Testament says it says this. Well, here in 1 Corinthians 14, 21, it doesn't really follow exactly either the, the Hebrew or the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. But Paul is using the verse and the, and the verses surrounding Isaiah 28, uh, 11 to make his point about tongues and prophecy in the New Testament. For context, here is Isaiah 28, verses 9 to 12. Now they're asking about Isaiah. This is the people of the land. And they're asking about Isaiah. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk? Those taken from the breast? For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, Line upon line, here a little, there a little. So the people were saying of Isaiah, who does he think he's talking to, children? Let's have a little more sophisticated teaching here, Isaiah. As it is, precept upon precept, line upon line. You're, it's like you're telling a nursery rhyme to us. The people mocked Isaiah for his call to them to repent. But the Lord had a response in verse 11, in which he said in so many times, in so many words, okay, so you want a more sophisticated argument? Tell you what, I'll let the Babylonians teach you. I'll let people come in with a foreign language, people that you won't understand. Look, if you're in a city and people who are in charge of the city aren't speaking your language and they're ordering you around pretty gruffly and they're making your life miserable, it's a sign of judgment. So Isaiah is saying these foreign tongues will be a sign of judgment. Then verses 11 and 12. For the people, for by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. To whom he has said, here's the sad thing. This is what God had said. This is rest. 
Give rest to the weary. And this is repose. Yet they would not hear. The Lord offered life and rest and peace. Shalom to the people of Israel. But they chose judgment and oppression. So how does this apply to 1 Corinthians 14? In verse 22, Paul says that tongues are assigned for the lost, but prophecy is assigned for believers. Prophesy, prophecy, you will call, recall from last week, is the spiritual gift of using words to build up and encourage and comfort others. Verse 23 has to be kept in context of the whole. If everyone is speaking in tongues, then it's not surprising that an outsider would come in and consider that everyone is mad. So here's likely what was happening. The, the, the people at Corinth were speaking in tongues and they thought that this gift showed how close they were to God and how close everyone else was not to God. And so everybody was speaking at the same time and they were getting louder and louder, just like children. When children are playing and they're trying to outdo the other one, that's likely what was going on. There's another thought uh, from some scholars who say that it's, it's also possible that, that when people would walk in, they would see what was going on in the church and say, well, this is no different from any of the other pagan cults around because each temple had its own way of, of acting and uh, uh, serving and worshiping and ecstatic utterances were often a part of that worship. And they would say, well, we don't know the code here, so I guess we're not supposed to be here. We're going to step out. Paul was not condemning the spiritual gift of tongues. He was condemning the misuse of tongues. So in the book of Acts, tongues were a sign that the Holy Spirit had come upon those who had repented of their sins and believed, just as Joel had prophesied. By quoting Isaiah 28 in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul was saying <clears throat> that tongues were a sign of judgment on unbelievers and thus they had an adverse effect on visitors. Prophecy, on the other hand, reading from Scripture, building up, encouraging others, is a, is a sign for believers that God is among us. But he said, if unbelievers walk in and you are prophesying, you're encouraging one another, or, or the word is being preached, unbelievers will then hear and see that God is among you and will fall on their face and repent and worship the Lord. In the biography of Tim Keller that I referenced last week, Colin Hansen described Keller's coming to an understanding at a very young age in his ministry that, that preaching can edify while it evangelizes and it can evangelize while it edifies. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but it's just this. Look, a, a, a lot of, um, a, of pastors today feel that they must give a lot of time to the preaching of the gospel. And what they mean is the plan of salvation. So they'll take a good portion of their sermon to talk about the plan of salvation. But the gospel is woven all the way through scripture. And gospel truth is 
everywhere. Reading these verses in 1 Corinthians 14, one of the years that I was just going through the Bible, I came across these verses and I, I had just been a pastor for a year or so. And I read this and I thought, oh, this is so good. At camp, you're always given an invitation because you want people to respond. But I, I, I realized you don't have to give an invitation to indicate that God is at work in through his word amongst the people in the church. In fact, I, I don't know that it's happened so much lately, but it happened a lot in those early years. We would ask people when they would join the church, we would talk about, <clears throat> when did you trust Christ? And they say, you know, I'm not exactly sure what day it was, <clears throat> but it was somewhere in that first week that I was coming to church. And I just believed. I, I understood and I believed somewhere along the way. And that's what the preaching of the word does. It convicts people's hearts. And they believe whether it is exactly step by step by step the plan of salvation uh, or not. The modern day invitation or altar call was firmly established during the second great awakening in the early 19th century. Although uh, uh, almost 100 years earlier, 75 80 years earlier, during the first great awakening, um, there were calls for immediate decisions. But it was the, the, the second great awakening where they started putting an anxious bench up front. Instead of people coming and kneeling at the altar, they would come to the anxious bench. And a lot of people were re really anxious. And someone would help them understand their need to call on the Lord and pray for salvation. Now... Has the Lord used the invitation? I get that question every so often. Why don't we have an invitation here at Grace? Has the Lord used the invitation? Mercy, yes. He has. A lot of people have been saved by coming forward in a service and responding to a call. But it's not walking forward that saves you. It's your faith in Christ that saves you. And the Lord did all right for those 1,800 years before the invitation became a thing in churches. I, I, I'm, by no means do I denigrate the, the use of the invitation, but our elders are quite satisfied that we're okay with the proclamation of the word. That's what brings unbelievers to repentance and faith. In verse 26, Paul begins to pull all of this teaching together that had begun in chapter 12. Now, some scholars think that the Corinthians normally met in small homes, but on a couple of occasions it, during the year, they would come together in, a, in, a, in one of the larger homes uh, that one of the wealthy Corinthian church members owned. There was plenty of room as long as everybody packed in and spread out a little bit. Their, their estimates, you may recall when we started this, study in 1 Corinthians a long time ago, uh, that this church was maybe as many as 100 people. But when, when they came together, if they came together for a special service, even if this is a Sunday morning service, there is big instruction for us. But it makes sense that this was a special service. The closest that we have to a service like that is described in these verses is our testimony services that usually happen around Thanksgiving and Christmas, at which a number, which time a number of 
people blessed the entire congregation with the word from the Lord. It makes sense to me that this could have been one of those special types of services. There were many contributions to the service. Some people said, I'm going to sing a hymn this morning. Others had prepared remarks. That's the teaching. Uh, some of you have a teaching. Others had a word from the Lord designed to encourage others. Some would speak with tongues and there was interpretation. The standards that Paul demanded were two. The building up of the body and self-control. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. If someone were to speak in tongues and there's no interpretation, he'd say, well, the person must refrain. Because we don't, he's already established in the first part of this chapter. If we don't know what you're saying, how can we worship? How can we say amen? How can we be sure that this is really praise for the Lord? This indicated a level of self-control over the gift that many did not seem to possess. And a lack of self-control continues to be a problem in lots and lots of our churches. Paul limited the use of tongues to two or three at the most and each in turn. And then he moved on to the gift of prophecy. Prophecy in this passage, remember, is not so much thus says the Lord as it is God is gracious to his people as he tells us in his word. He's called us to trust him when life is beset with difficulties and we don't understand. He has called us to proclaim the truth of the gospel even when those that we witness to do not believe and they mock us and persecute us. We're called to love one another. Brothers and sisters, let us stand with Jesus even though it would be outside the camp. So in other words, what Paul is saying is about the gift of prophecy. It's like our testimonies laced with admonitions to the rest of the congregation. Instead of just saying, this is what the Lord taught me. Just to say, this is a good word for all of us. So once again. Two or three prophets are to speak. And then what they said must be evaluated. It's not that they stopped the service and then evaluated what had been said by these first two or three people. Or maybe it was like that. It could have been. Verse 31 seems to indicate that all are capable of prophecy. And each can do so in turn, whether that means two or three this Sunday, two or three next Sunday, and we'll get around to everybody sooner or later. Or if it means that this kind of testimony could be extended beyond uh, that time. He doesn't put a limit on it like he does with tongues. He says two or three, but then he says all could prophesy. So it could be that this prophecy... Gift of prophecy, when defined as encouraging the body, is the responsibility of all believers. The same as prayer and giving and witnessing. We're all called to do these things, to have faith. But some have faith at a higher level than others. And some witness more easily than others and are gifted in that. But everybody's called to do it, but some at a higher level. So... If it's the responsibility of all believers, 
we are called nonetheless with this gift and with all gifts to exercise self-control and assume a posture of submissiveness to the body as a whole. That's not easy. Just not easy to be submissive. This makes, though, verse 33, for a church that reflects its God, who is a God of peace, a God of shalom. He is not a God of confusion. Halfway through verse 33, Paul throws us a 2,000-year-old curveball, and it's got a lot of action on the, on the spin, I'm telling you. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. The advantage of going all the way through a book of the Bible, especially in New Testament, a book like 1 Corinthians, is that the interpretation of difficult passages often passages is often aided uh, by earlier passages or subsequent passages. You will recall in 1 Corinthians 11:5 that Paul spoke to the shameful practice of women prophesying with their heads uncovered. Now, even if you weren't here for these messages or for that message, you should understand two things very quickly. First of all, this is a cultural issue. Most of none, none of you have coverings on your head that I can see besides your hair. Um, <clears throat> that is women. Not all the men have that same covering on their heads, but that's okay. <laughs> Two, I'm getting less and less of it, you know. Uh, mine's going away. My barber tells me every time, you're not going to want to hear this, but your hair is thinning. You know, I'm like, okay, I've heard it before. <laughs> so, um, but, so we don't practice that. It was a cultural thing. But secondly, it was assumed in 1 Corinthians 11, interesting, isn't it, that women will pray and prophesy, both pray and prophesy. Understanding the cultural concern will help us interpret chapter 14. And by the way, isn't it interesting? If 1 Corinthians 11 assumes that women will pray and prophesy, what does that say about prophecy being, the gift of prophecy being like the gift of preaching? Just a thought. I don't care. I'm in so much trouble in this sermon anyway. For women to be in public in the first century with their heads uncovered was to indicate to the world that they were available with other men. It'd be like this. Wife would take her wedding ring off and she would go to the market and she would go to the church. And it would be essentially saying, I'm available. I'm available. So the covering was a sign of submission, not just in the church, in the culture, in the city. For a woman to go, a married woman to go to church without a head covering was also a sign of disrespect and a lack of submission to their husbands in a society in which men were publicly disgraced if their wives behaved in such a manner. Although 
It is speculative about the teaching in 1 Corinthians 14. It makes good sense to me. It could be that women were participating in the evaluation of the prophecy. So it's like Lee's over here and Stacy is over here. And Lee says something in, in his prophecy. And then Stacy says, I, I don't agree with that. I think he's wrong about that. Now look, it is... How would we feel if that happened today? That, that, that's not just a first century thing. We're, we're no more allowed to humiliate one another publicly than they were in that day. But, but the people at Corinth had taken this freedom thing way too far. So Paul ends this extensive teaching about spiritual gifts by encouraging the believers in verse 39 to earnestly desire to edify others, but also to not forbid the use of tongues if used properly. Verse 40 undergirds and overlays all that is done in worship service and in the life of the church together. All things should be done decently and in order. It's in the home group notes this week, but just pray sometime this week and thank the Lord for those who order our services and conduct our services in the way that they do. David Calvert being one of the key ones in that, but a whole lot of people are in on the way that our worship service services are structured and conducted. So pray for them and remember <coughs> that we're called that all to do all things decently and in order. And the reason is because it's already been stated in this text. It reflects God's nature. Our God is a God of order, not a God of confusion nor of chaos. I know that we have many views represented at Grace about spiritual gifts. And I hope that you've seen through this study at least a reasonable explanation why those who might disagree with you, uh, believe as they do. And once again, I know that many of you on both sides of the issue are very comfortable with your theological slash biblical position. But as for me, I stand with my feet firmly planted in the middle. <laughs> so, and I'm comfortable with that. And I hope that my comfortable, my ability to be comfortable with that does not make you uncomfortable. One of the saddest things about our differences concerning spiritual gifts is that some people feel that the Holy Spirit is being neglected in our day. And others are on alert anytime the Holy Spirit is mentioned. How sad that is in both directions. That leads to a question that some of you have begun to ask in recent days. What is the Holy Spirit doing at Asbury College in Wilmore, Kentucky. I don't know if you know what's going on. I imagine you do. Let me say this first and then I'll get to it. A week and I'll just explain a little bit. A week and a half ago, after chapel ended on, on Wednesday morning in Asbury, some students stayed put. They stayed where they were. And here's the way it's described in Christianity today. Quote, after the benediction, the gospel choir began to sing a final chorus. And then something began to happen that defies easy descriptions. Students didn't leave. 
They were struck by what seemed to be a quiet but powerful sense of transcendence. And they didn't want to go. They stayed and continued to worship. They are still there. 24-7, the students have been there worshiping and praising the Lord. Look, as Russ Strand first pointed out in his words on faith life on Thursday, there's reason to be optimistic. It's a cautious optimism for sure. But the great revivals in our land have almost always begun with students. There are a lot of ways to analyze revivals and in, in comparing what is happening today with what's happened in the past. And only time is going to tell whether a national revival has indeed begun and that it's going to spill out well beyond the walls of the chapels. Look, we, I think we know it. I think we know it doesn't matter what age you are. If you have any perspective on history, you've got to know we're in trouble in our country. It's not sustainable the way we're living right now. It's just not we need. As the people of God, not as a nation, but as the people of God, we need to turn back to the Lord. And if he's, doing a, if he's beginning a big work where he's calling people to himself, praise the Lord. One of the reasons that I'm cautiously optimistic is that a few theologians I highly respect are optimistic. They seem to think it's a real thing happening there. Furthermore, the 24-hour prayer and worship and confession of sin that is occurring at Asbury is being conducted in a way that is aligned with the scripture that we've looked at today. It's being done in an orderly fashion. If I have a concern from what I've read so far, not in any way to throw a blanket on, just to say as a word of caution, and the Lord is bigger than this anyway. It's that the primary emphasis is on singing praise and worship songs rather than hearing directly from the word. Now look, the songs that are being sung are, are theologically rich and instructive to be sure. But if true revival is going to come to the land, the preaching of the word is going to be central. But it doesn't matter where it starts. If the spirit begins to move in this session like he is in Asbury and in other places around the country... It's going to happen. The word is going to be preached. People are going to be hungry for God if he's put that hunger within them. So what are we to do? Well, we're to do what we've always done. Confess and repent of our sins. I'm, I was grateful for the, 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 the focus that Neil put on confession of sin this morning at the table. But we need to ask the Lord to examine our hearts and be ready to confess and repent and forsake our sins. We need to pray for God's blessings to fall on us and for many to come to Christ and to pray for the Holy Spirit to move in our nation to exalt Jesus according to the Father's plan. Share the gospel with those who are lost and do not be discouraged when they reject the message of the gospel. So many times... Those who are the most resistant to the gospel are the ones who are right on the cusp of believing. It's just the way the Lord works. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, come and heal our land. Would you pray together with me?
Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Lord, I, I know that the Corinthians weren't terribly excited about what they heard when, when, when you, by the Holy Spirit, led the Apostle Paul to write to them. And the word that was good for them is a word that is good for us, even though we don't have the disorder and confusion that is going on. But Lord, we are always aware that when we operate apart from the Spirit, it does not matter what it looks like. It's not pleasing to you. And so, Lord, make us submissive to you, to one another. May we love one another well and love one another deeply. May you do a great work first in our lives and in our church and in our state and in our land. And around the world, we pray, Lord, for revival. And we pray for you to touch us in a way that draws us closer and closer to Jesus. May we stay faithful in all the ways that we know. Word, sacrament here at the church, holiness, and witnessing as we go from here. We love you and give thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand again? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.